Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined once again by horror author David Dumchuk to talk about selling our souls, deals with the devil, Faustian bargains. So, David, welcome to the show. It's always a delight to be on. Thank you very much for having me back. Of course. I do have one question for you. Sure. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? <laughs> I, well, you know, I, I'm not doing too badly right now. I am living pretty deliciously. <laughs> we have all the butter we could want. Yeah, I suppose one could always live more deliciously. So, um, so yes, I, I, I certainly recognize the temptation that is being presented in that question. <laughs> Yeah, Black Phillip would need to up that because I don't I don't think I'd do it for a dress and some butter. No, no. I think the stakes have changed in the mm-hmm. 21st century. <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, I do like butter. I'm very happy to have you on. I've been wanting to do this topic for quite a while. So deals with the devil. How would you go about defining that? Yeah, I mean the the concept of Faustian horror is interesting because it's such an it's such an old piece of folkloric horror the concept of uh somebody wanting to make a deal with the devil in order to get something that they feel is lacking in their life whether i mean traditionally you know the story talks about a scholar who wanted to have um more earthly knowledge and wanted to be able to uh to have new experiences and and to basically sort of like you know be led into a life of corruption is really what they were thinking i think so what it seems to require is number one it requires um a person who wants something that they feel is unattainable or that um Maybe they're just, I don't know, too lazy to attain in the conventional way. And then the second thing is a deal um, in order to be able to acquire that. And usually the story goes that you're selling your soul to the devil. And then thirdly, it requires a devil. Different versions of the story um, play with different aspects. Obviously, it's not always a scholar. Sometimes it's someone who's very down and out. Sometimes it's people who are very ambitious and who crave, you know, either more fame or or um, or or more financial success or something that clearly is is sort of selfish and venal and potentially within itself kind of corrupting to the soul. Um, you you then you know can play with the concept of what the bargain is you know whether you're selling your soul literally um, and therefore are going to end up in hell or whether you're selling some aspect of yourself some you know your your integrity your morality or you can extend it beyond yourself you know your your relationship you know your spouse your child someone who is an innocent in that way. Um, and of course, then there's the question of, you know, does it have to be the devil? Can it be a devil? Can it be a an evil entity of some sort that um, that hears your wish um, to sell your soul or whatever it is that you're planning on selling and then decides to make good on your offer? So those three components seem to be what's required in order for this to work. There are certainly stories where people make wishes 
to nothing <laughs> or to weird objects and things like that. Um, like, for example, the monkey's paw is a classic story. You know, uh, somebody acquires this mummified monkey's paw. You're able to make wishes um, and the wishes come true, but they come true in really horrible ways. That's a really great story, but it doesn't have what I would describe as the devil component, you know, mm -hmm. and the wishes are basically, you know, the means to the end within themselves. You're really looking for someone with whom to make the deal. And that, I think, is is key to um, to really playing through with this particular kind of, you know, either dark fantasy or a horror trope. I think so, too. And I'm always looking for that charismatic devilish figure to to show up in these stories i think that's absolutely part of the payoff is mm -hmm. that there is that dialogue where where you you speak aloud this dark desire you have and then someone or something turns up <laughs> and then and then gets into a kind of a dialogue or a conversation with you where they tease out you know just how much you want this just what kind of desire or ambition you have what you are willing to uh to to lay on the line and um and and how desperate you must be in order to engage not only in this deal but also with this dealer yes i do also like when it takes a turn into comedy the comedy horror aspect of it when it's like oh you weren't ultra specific in your wish so you know what that means all of these things you didn't specify so they're gonna come back and get you <laughs> Yes, I mean, there's always, and of course, a, a, a critical component of this in many of the stories is that somehow the protagonist tries to either renege on the deal or find a loophole in the deal, um, and and there the potential for comedy in those aspects, um, particularly if they're not promising things for themselves, like if they involve other people and the other people are or unwitting or just. Dis discover it at the 11th hour oh i'm being used in this whole weird scenario and then they short circuit the whole thing and either it goes really badly for the people who made the deal in the first place or it goes really badly for the devil which sometimes is an important part of the folklore as well and um depending on how the story is told um it is possible in some of these stories to pull the rug out from under the devil and the devil goes away unsatisfied and and there can be quite a bit of suspense and comedy suspense about whether or not that's going to happen in the particular story as it's being told yes like that i feel like in the stories that i'm thinking of it's like that final defeating the devil i would say a few of the times with selflessness yes often it's with redeeming yourself mm -hmm. at the last minute or sacrificing yourself in another way or a loved one sacrificing mm -hmm. themselves in order to save you those things um i think are are also important components for for how a story like this can short circuit there are even versions of the story where the devil themselves feels some kind of compassion for uh the person who made the deal uh depending on how the uh elements play out and and that's a surprise as well i mean one of the things that is key about making a deal with the devil is it's understood this this entity is not your peer this entity in fact is theoretically you know, 
almost all-powerful. The only thing that's more powerful than the devil, in theory, is God. And and so um, you could possibly make an appeal to God in order to undo the deal, you know, sacrificing yourself in the process. Or you could, you know, in some way transcend the the situation the deal has created for you, and you could appeal, you know, as absurd as it sounds, to the devil's better side, and um, or make a different exchange. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you had, if you had uh, sacrificed your innocent child, for example, you could say, okay, you can't take my child, but you can take me. I mean, of course, the devil's going to go, what? Your your child is ever so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of that kind of you know, trying to feel your way around the edges of the deal to figure out where the cracks are, how you might be able to make the whole thing fall apart. That I think is a really critical part of of how the story plays out as well. Definitely. Do we want to talk about how this trope has shown up in films? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's I I think for probably as long as there have been movies, um, there have been versions of this story that have been told in silent films. And, um, of course, in, you know, in films throughout the classic period. And uh, I mean, and there are there are interesting, weird variations of it um, even today. So there's a lot we can talk about. Definitely. I wanted to start off with uh, one of my favorite Stephen King books. Needful oh, which things. is needful things. Yes, absolutely. Which, which is um, the the proprietor of the curiosity shop mm-hmm. um, who comes to the small town and starts, as I recall, starts um, giving people the things that they desire, and of course that starts to turn inside out for them. Yes, we got Leland Gaunt, the the charismatic, very showing up out of the blue. A shop owner in this town who yeah has this antique shop with all of these treasures and all of the citizens of I think this one is set in Castle Rock I'm sure the Stephen King heads will come for me um, on that <laughs> they they will let me know if I was wrong I think this is one of the Castle Rock stories though um, and they all um, the citizens of the town just start going crazy for different things in this shop and you know deals are made Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think he's a really great example of of a charismatic um, character or entity. Um, it's, you know, it's every bit as much his charm and his seductive quality and his temptations as it is anything that's in the shop or anything that the people desire. He really is um, a huge... Uh, focal point for the story definitely i mean i think when people think of needful things they leland gaunt is tip of the tongue yeah like it is just what they think of. you can picture him however you want to picture him you can picture the shop like you know that like it's just it springs you know you can you know you it you just it's crystal clear in anyone's mind you know when they when they uh have that story and in the movie was it Max von Cito? I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, whoever it I'm was. Think. I'm only thinking of Ed Harris. I can't remember who. Well, yes, Ed Harris. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, whoever it was, you were probably looking it up. Whoever it was. Yes, you're right. They, I, it was Max von Cito. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, wonderful classic actor. Uh, just brought a tremendous depth and dimension to the role. Clearly, was having a delightful time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> because I mean, this is one of the things that's also great about it as a story. If you're going to adapt it into like theater or film or opera or television, it's a juicy part. There are a lot of great parts potentially in the telling of this story, but this this is always a great role. And the people who play, you yes. know, variations on it just have a tremendous time. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm looking down at the list. I'm like, you know what? All these actors had a great time. Yeah. Elizabeth Hurley, Al Pacino, they ate it up. They loved it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in um in Angel Heart, uh yep. which you Robert know, which is also, you know, which is Robert De Niro, he too is just he's you know, obviously he's getting paid. He's putting his feet up. He's having a great time. <laughs> and and that of course uh is based on a Clive Barker short story. So there are, you know, between Stephen King I did not King, know that. Yes, it's based on the Hellbound Heart, and and between Stephen King and Clive Barker, I mean, I think a lot of the great horror writers feel that it's a really great trope to play with and to experiment with, and to try to find out what they can do that's new with the story and that will surprise people as they're reading it. It's, uh, I think, I I think that's the temptation for the writer, who in many cases is the stand-in for the protagonist when telling these stories. Yes. Did you ever watch the Wishmaster movies? I don't think they quite fall into this exactly, but I did kind of want to talk about wishes getting turned on their head. <laughs> yeah, I think that this is where, again, uh, I watched the first one, It's but I've got to say, so many years ago, I'm so old, and so many years ago that I barely remember, I remember the look of the Wishmaster more than anything else about, about the movies. But um, this, again, is where... Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the devil or even a devil. In this mm-hmm. case, it's a jinn or a mm-hmm. genie, as we as we understand it, who is summoned by teens. I want to say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like breaking into a museum and they like knock over the lamp and something and summon him. And then once again, it's the whole thing of being able to grant wishes. And once again, the wishes have their dark component to them and, um, and people get their comeuppance and, and that's, again playing with the exact same you know sort of faustian trope but in a different setting um and an exoticized and orientalized setting to be sure uh but there is that aspect of it absolutely yeah that actor also having the time of his life doing so much eyebrow work (laughs) (laughs) eyebrow acting i think is a very important component in this role no matter what movie it's in or what story it is (laughs) i mean he's great at it but just like i can't do it i don't have the eyebrow dexterity that he does well i'm Uh, ukrainian we only have one eyebrow so that actually impedes us terribly (laughs) it's no eyebrow acting for you yes no eyebrow acting for me (laughs) In the franchise, I only watched the the first two. Yeah. Um, He is essentially waiting for people to make these wishes and then waiting for specific wording so he can turn it on his head and turn it against them. And sometimes like, you know, it's a horror movie. Kill people in these really outlandish and cuckoo bananas. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, I I mean, which for uh, the slasher aspect of it, I mean, that's part of the fun as well, Mm -hmm. is just, you know, taking sort of like this crazy approach to to murder and mayhem. 
<laughs> and uh, and it really does make the movies more entertaining than they deserve to be. But uh, but he he's a big part of it. He really lands the role, um, and he he brings it all home with uh, with his expressions, his intonation. Um, it's a lot of fun. I thought so too. I it was one of those movies that I had kind of seen around the uh, ye old video shops when they used to exist, and I was like. That looks interesting. Someday I'll watch it. And I saw it on Tubi. I'm like, today is that day. <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's. I think that it was a staple in many of the old VHS video stores. Um, I can certainly remember it at places like Blockbuster, where you. Know, and of course, I don't remember how many sequels there were, but there were. It felt like a multitude mm-hmm. of them all lined up in a row, and uh, and it was essentially the same movie over and over and over again. But it's again, it's a it's a formula that kind of refuses to die. So uh, so if you're if you're inclined to be entertained by even one of them, then you might as well check them all out. So I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. No, absolutely. Um, I was watching the newest episode of What We Do in the Shadows last night in Hulu. Have you been watching that? No, I haven't. I uh, I only ever saw the movie, I think. But I understand the series is really good. It is really good. I think just all the hijinks they get into, they keep outdoing themselves. Um, but in this latest season, Nandor found a djinn and he was granted three wishes and so his familiar Guillermo is kind of trying to help him like navigate like they're really being careful about their wording and it's the djinn they're just kind of patiently being like they're I mean they're correct in what they're doing it's just really annoying to just sit here <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, it's that whole thing of trying to lawyer your wishes in such a way as to make them airtight and Mm -hmm. not have them fire back against you. I mean, one of the things that's really delightful about what we do in the shadows is that the characters know the tropes as well as we do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and they're able to to explore them from the inside, which I think is a lot of fun. And uh, and this would be an excellent example of of them sort of going, okay. We know how this works. We know how this is going to work against us. We're going to try to find a way to make this work for us. And I think that would be just a treat. I mean, I think that's something I'd like to see more. I want to see more uh, devil lawyers. I think there was a character like that that showed up in the Netflix Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, why don't we have more of this? Of like, I'm a, I'm a mortal lawyer, but I specialize in like demonic law. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's a brilliant idea. I think there should be more of that, absolutely. And then I, I touched on it earlier, but yeah, Al Pacino's portrayal as the devil in the 90s movie, The Devil's Advocate, is peak. This is a really interesting choice, too, because this is a high-end movie. You know, this isn't Wishmaster. <laughs> I know. This is a multi-million dollar movie. You know, Al Pacino, award-winning actor, storied career, you know. And I mean, you know, in his later years, has to be said, bit of a ham. And this is the kind of role that that absolutely, you know, uh, compliments, you know, flatters a hammy actor. You can just go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold back at all and have just a great time so yeah i mean he you know he did a, a tremendous job in that movie and uh, as he does in 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 almost all his movies but it also gave him um a real capacity to just like eat the scenery <laughs> it really did i was just wondering i mean at the time it came out 
I mean, with the title of the movie, the poster, the marketing, the way it's played as a big twist at the end, I'm like, is this a is this a twist? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't know? <laughs> <laughs> the movie's called The Devil's Advocate. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that there were people who weren't familiar with the story, you know, at that time, because it had been a while since a version of that story had been told, or that had been told in a mainstream context. I certainly there'd been, you know, as we've sort of, you know, alluded, you know, sort of B movie style horror movies, you know, straight to video movies, TV movies, things like that. But there hadn't really been um, a, a serious, a relatively serious, lush, you know, sort of expensive version of this story and placing it sort of within the legal world such that it is oh, yeah. um, might have seemed fresh, you know, for some people. But really, I mean, as you say, the moment you like the moment you see the way the story is being presented, you know full well what's going on. There's not going to be a big surprise here. <laughs> you know, it is exactly the story you think it is. I rewatched it recently for this episode and I'm like, this was wild. This just this was just in theaters. This just came out and was out in the world. Okay. <laughs> someone had the money, someone did the casting, someone wrote the story, someone put it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I did also rewatch Bedazzled. I know that it was a remake. I know there's a original one in the sixties, which I haven't seen. So the one I saw was the Brendan Fraser Elizabeth Hurley one. Yes, absolutely. The one, I want to say the one that was in the 60s was, I think it was Dudley Moore. And, um, and it was, and I think that, that in fact, it was some, some of the comedians who were involved in the, um, in the British comedy group Beyond the Fringe who were involved in that. Um, I could be making this up because again, I'm an elderly person, but um, that was part of the, um the deal when they were doing it in sort of the so-called swinging 60s was like what if the devil's a woman or what if the devil is represented by a woman and um and so the temptations become sort of more overtly flirtatious and sexual in that sort of like austin powersy kind of mm -hmm. way um and um and it was hugely popular it was a uh, it was a big success in the 60s and then again with brendan fraser it was a, a big success in in what was it the 90s mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah so and of course elizabeth hurley you know being gorgeous and british uh <laughs> was in like, her way you know sort of the ideal temptress in this like situation i would also sell my soul yeah mm -hmm. hello i mean you know who wouldn't <laughs> and again having the time of her life yeah like clearly clearly the better part yeah i mean the the different characters that brendan fraser plays i will say not all of it ages super well there is some some brown face going on yeah i'm a, i i would be afraid to look back at it for that reason i think some of the stuff is very dated but yeah. i think that conceptually um, it shows how versatile this this trope continues to be. You could turn around and you could do a version of Bedazzled today mm -hmm. um, with, again, you know, suitably, you know, foxy actor, actress, you know, playing the devil role, suitably, you know, sort of foolish, you know, young man more often mm -hmm. than not in in the in the protagonist role. And and you could have just as much fun with it, you know, in a completely contemporary context. 
I mean, I think listeners are probably going to be disappointed, but I never watched that show that came out a few years ago, Lucifer, which I think probably would have fit really well into this. Yeah, I didn't watch it either. I do think, though, that it probably was playing with a lot of the same elements. I think that um, that whenever you want to try to personify evil and have that evil working in the world as an entity, um, there's a natural attraction to this particular trope. And I think that it's hard to resist. So, yeah, I would expect to see elements of that. And we've seen elements of it, as you've pointed out in Sabrina, there have been elements of that. Um, A lot of the contemporary sort of, um, I want to say, they're not really CW shows anymore. (laughs) Whoever it is who's making these shows these days, um, there are elements of that sort of deal with the devil thing, even on the most sort of like subtle you know nuanced almost subliminal level there's always a sort of a thing going on um you know the temptation of evil and and the overtness of of the corrupting yourself or sacrificing aspects of yourself in order to pursue it so yeah i think that i think that's it's there's it's still a live wire in our culture today for sure definitely um i was talking with you before we recorded but i think one of the modern iterations of it was in the movie ready or not which falls into the you're sacrificing others for in your case in this case success wealth um and i'm sorry to spoil it for people who haven't seen it but it is this family who has made this deal with this dark entity that when someone joins their family they have to play a game and if they choose hide and seek essentially they have to be killed before sunrise Um, as a sacrifice to maintain their wealth and status. Absolutely. And I mean, what's really neat about this is, of course, it shows how elaborate (laughs) the whole deal has to be. It has to be this game. It has to happen at this time. You have to do this before this time. Or, in the case of this particular family, terrible things will happen to you. You'll either get your success and maintain your success and your wealth, or something dreadful is going to happen in the family, which means, of course, the stakes are super high. And they they have had, you know, the reason they've been able to maintain their success is that they have gotten a succession of people involved in the family and then bumped off who have not been particularly skilled. And then, of course, along comes Samara Weaving, <laughs> who is a force of nature in whatever horror movie she is cast in. And she just, you know, she's going to live no matter what. She she is not a shrinking violet. She is absolutely going to beat the game. And you take great delight in watching her do so. It's, uh, it's, it, the, the, the thing where you have what would normally be the protagonist, um, selling somebody else's soul instead of their own is a relatively new invention. It's a relatively new twist to the story. The first time I ever saw it, I think, was in Rosemary's Baby, Mm -hmm. which, of course, came out in the late 60s. And, I mean, you know, uh, spoiler alert for everyone who hasn't seen it and really should, um, the whole thing behind it is that her husband has made a deal with the Satanists um, and has sold the soul of their unborn baby um, that Rosemary is carrying um, in order for him, uh, horrifically, because it's just so trite, in order for him to become a successful actor. <laughs> Guy would so have just... Yeah, I mean, if ever there was a way to make sure that, you know, that you do not like this man 
at all. <laughs> the fact that he would, you know, sell, you know, his first of all, that he would rent out his mm-hmm. wife and that secondly sell his child in order for something so crass and pathetic it's um it's quite remarkable at the end you really he is just an incredibly hissable villain and um whereas the satanists because they're all basically you know older people who live in this old apartment building in new york they're there there's almost a comic side to them they're not especially threatening as except that there's quite a few of them um and they don't actually mean rosemary any harm they just want the baby and um and of course what happens with which is really interesting for me what happens in this situation is that rosemary is about to kill the child until she sees it and we know what she sees is not attractive we know the first thing that happens is she sees um the baby's eyes and she's you know and she exclaims what have you done to him what have you done to his eyes and and of course one of the satanists says he has his father's eyes which is so very creepy (laughs) but but rosemary comes to a place where she believes that even though the child is half devilish the child is also half her and that maybe there is a way that she can reach out you know as raising him, you know, reach out to the human side uh, of her son and and overcome the devilishness that is inherent within him. And and so it's unusual in a Faustian story like this that you reach such an ambiguous conclusion. Yeah. And um, and that was one of the things that was um, – that first of all felt very real. It felt very honest. It felt like something that a mother would feel in that situation, even if she was confronted with something truly monstrous, that she would still see herself and, you know, and her humanness within it, and that she would try to preserve that. Um, but this is really only approachable as an ending to this kind of story if you make someone else the protagonist other than the person who's making the deal um because you know because rosemary's not evil she's a bystander in the situation um and so we see a few of these uh stories in later years where someone else you know is sort of like caught up in uh the deal and um and has to fight their way out of it or find their own way through it um in order to be able to survive and you know and to a certain extent it's like screw the protagonist you know that we would normally have it's it's you know you're being able able to to spend time with somebody who's truly an innocent and mm-hmm. and you want them to prevail one way or another yes and um i think with these modern iterations i think we see a lot more of it with class that the wealthy class has made this deal they are reaping the benefits of this security of this wealth of this success and not being touched by this curse because they are just feeding lower class people to this monster or this demon and sacrificing them and the consequences of it never touch them yes i think that class um is a big component we've seen a bit with race as well on and off over the years but but um particularly when you see a british version you see class a lot Mm -hmm. and um and 
when you have an American version that involves class, it is about long-standing established wealth, and sometimes in and particularly in the case of uh, Ready or Not, um, in peculiar circumstances, like the the family has made its money off of games. And sure, I mean, you can make a lot of money off of games, <laughs> but the games that they have made money off of are like really old school things. And 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 you think to yourself, really? But I mean, but that's part of um, the gimmick for the movie is that it doesn't really matter what they've made their money in um, because they're they're going to get their money because they are making the sacrifices they're going to get their money and it's actually kind of funny and it actually is kind of tires tiresome for them <laughs> that they have to go through this exercise of hide and seek and they're running around with crossbows and and guns and shooting the wrong people and all of it they're really quite inept <laughs> they really well, need somebody handed to them on a platter truly but I think I also really like that this deal was made generations before them, so they don't even know if it's really real at the end. No, until until they're big until... comeuppance, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is, it has to be said, a very big comeuppance. <laughs> but until the big comeuppance, it really is that thing where they they don't know if they're just doing this um, for the sake of doing it, but they have that fear. And they're right to have that fear that if if they don't go through this ritual, something something bad could happen. Really, the only thing that they imagine, I suppose, is that they could just lose their money. It doesn't occur to them that worse things could occur. And they do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but, you know, for them, even the loss of a penny is more than they are willing to tolerate and they will kill whoever they need to kill really primarily her, in order um, to to maintain the status quo. And there is, as we watch this, you know, even though it's a very gory comedy, we recognize that there's an element of truth to this. We believe that rich people will sacrifice, and we've seen it ourselves, you know, dozens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, cities full of people, in order to maintain their level of wealth. And mm -hmm. and so um, watching it play out in absurd sort of terms um, is kind of cathartic, actually. In the words of Samara Weaving, fucking rich people. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Damn Yankees, um, I think, is a great example. It's a, it's very convoluted, but in short, there is a guy who is sort of a, an everyday, ordinary Joe who um, really wishes that his that the his favorite uh, baseball team, the uh, I think they're called the Washington Senators, um, could finally win a game against the damn Yankees. You know, the New York Yankees, and um, and so he. Goofily <laughs> sells his soul, um, and not only does uh, do, do the Washington Senators uh, get to start winning games, but he in fact gets to change identities, and he gets to play on this baseball team, and um, and 
but of course the deal that he's made has a loophole and the loophole is that you know if he decides to pull out of the deal at a particular point just as the senators are winning um he gets to walk away without any harm um so the devil and it the devil has a an accomplice whose name is lola who is um who is i guess the precursor to uh to the uh elizabeth hurley character in bedazzled um the devil uses Lola as a temptress to try to keep him in the deal for as long as possible so that, of course, the, his soul can ultimately be collected. And um, and so there's one of the things, of course, that has to be said about it as a movie is it's a musical. It was originally a Broadway musical. It is a movie musical. Um, it has uh, Gwen Vernon, who um, was um, Bob Fosse's partner for a very long time. And she, of course, gets the big song, which is whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you. <laughs> it's a really great song. And, and while the devil is a charismatic enough character in Damn Yankees, she really gets to like, to completely sell the deal. Once again, you have this this incredibly enticing, charismatic, charming woman who, um, by hook or by crook, is 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 going to seal the deal. And uh, and it's it's a it's a real treat. It's a lot of fun to watch. Um, the other movie that. Um, I would like to think most people have heard of by now. Certainly most people in your podcast uh, who listen to your podcast have heard of by now, um, but was not a hit at the time and was only a hit in one city in North America, the city that I was born and raised in, Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise uh, by Brian De Palma, um, which took the uh, the story of Faust and set it firmly in the rock world in the 1970s. And um, it's an amazing movie. And, um, and I really hope that if you haven't seen it, uh, people who are listening, that you check it out because there is so much terrific stuff going on in it. In this particular version, there is a uh, young man uh, named Winslow Leach who has composed a rock cantata that is based on the story of Faust. And um, a nefarious uh, record producer played by um, um, Paul Williams basically steals the music um and and entices winslow um to sell his soul uh for rock and roll quote unquote in order to uh in order to get the album produced and in order to get the young woman he's fallen in love with whose name is phoenix into a starring role and then of course the deal you know spectacularly falls apart on a number of levels and um and it stays quite close to the original story to the original faust story while introducing a lot of really interesting um musical elements that reflect the trends of the time from from a resurgence of sort of 50s style music and surfer music to um to sort of like r&b style music and then sort of moving forward into sort of you know that sort of like sort of gothy sort of deathy sort of creepy 
Alice Coopery kind of metal um, hard rock that was happening at the time, and um, and it has fun with all of that stuff, and it manages uh, to take a lot of the musical themes that it sets up, and and uh, and adapt them into into these varying um, kind of genres. It's a it's a really neat movie to watch, and it has a very strong horror element as well as comedy and musical. So um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot of fun to check out. I have not watched that one. You should absolutely watch that movie. I I watched Damn Yankees uh, for this. It's on Tubi. So if anyone wants to check it out, it is available on there. Uh, But I'll have to check out Phantom of the Paradise. That sounds really good. It is. It is just a riot. It really is. This episode is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best. Booksellers. I mean, and us. We also have a playlist on there full of books that have been recommended on this podcast. Books in the Freezer special offer. You get two audiobooks for the price of one, just $14.99, with your first month of membership using code FREEZERBOOK. This offer is valid for new members in Canada and the United States. Thank you, Libro FM, for supporting the show. All right, well, should we get into talking about books? Oh, of course. Always. Always. It's why we're here. <laughs> All right, well, I'll start off with probably one of the more popular recent releases in this genre, and that is We Sold Our Souls by Grady Hendrix. Have you read this one? I have not read it, but I know all about it. And Grady is somebody who is absolutely, I don't know, I think he has a list of the tropes that he wants to like, you know, cover um, that are sort of classics in the horror genre. And this is, of of course, as you know, yet another example of someone who takes um, the Faust story and puts it into um, a musical context. Now you've read it. Uh, Tell us a bit about it. Uh, I really liked this one. This is about a woman named Chris. When we're introduced to her, she's kind of working the front desk at a Best Western, just this dead end job. And as we learn more about her, we learn that she was a guitarist for this heavy metal band called Dirt Work. And they were just on the precipice of hitting it big. But all of a sudden, their lead singer, Terry just skyrocketed to fame and is now touring is successful under the name coffin and uh, one of her old bandmates reaches out to her and basically tells her like terry is successful because he sold all of us out like all of us can't find any success or joy or happiness in life and it all went to him and also there's all these conspiracies going around so i mean the the friend sounds unhinged and she doesn't know what to think she's like you know he's saying don't trust ups drivers they're coming out to get you and she's like i don't even know what to do with you um 
she learns you cannot trust UPS drivers. And so maybe he was right about everything and embarks on this road trip to confront him at a big concert he's doing in Las Vegas. She's driving cross country. It's this road trip novel. She's also like running away from these forces that are coming after her. And then all of this, there's this heavy metal stuff going on, which I don't think I fully appreciated the first time I read through it. Um, I think I've gotten a little more into the metal scene now, and I think references and stuff might land a little better for me if I read through it now. Um, But I just remember I had so much fun with this story, even not knowing a ton about that. Um, Just Chris as a character, kind of the road trip story, all of these like conspiracies, and then you kind of get these pages from like chat rooms and stuff. It was just all of it put together for this like fun story. Well, and I love that kind of element where somebody presents you with this scenario and you think to yourself, okay, I am dealing with a mad person here. <laughs> and and then you start to make, you know, like little observations or little discoveries or sometimes big discoveries that make you think, okay, maybe every the whole way that I'm seeing the world is utterly wrong. And and maybe I am in fact, you know, the victim of some sort of, you know, elaborate sort of, you know, puppetry that's going on that has ruined my life and how can I try to restore normalcy? And um, and get at this person who has betrayed all of us. That is a I think that's a really clever idea. I read um, a Kim Newman. I didn't put it on our list, but I read a Kim Newman book years ago called The Quorum, and it was kind of the reverse. And it was about, and again, it was about class, obviously, interestingly enough. There were some upper class um, British uh students who i guess it's a a group of like four or five of them and what they do is they sell the soul of one of them so that one his life is ruined while all the others succeed and that too yeah it's really interesting the fact that you know people are sort of you know independently arriving at this concept and 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 figuring out ways to and it was it was a satire of London during that period, which again was it was probably around the 80s or the 90s. Um, but the fact that it was so class based and it was and it was quite dark and um, and the stuff that happened to this one guy was tremendously upsetting. And they were all just like living their lives. We're just living our lives. One of them, of course, obviously has regrets and he sort of ends up subverting the whole thing. But but again, it's that thing of you know. Someone, you know, sacrificing other people for their own success and how that can either play as comedy or it can play as really stark and disturbing horror. It's, you know, that versatility really intrigues me or sometimes both. Actually, you can have both in the same story. And I find it um, really compelling. Oh, it definitely is. And Grady is lots of fun. His stuff is really enjoyable. And he has like just a great sense of humor. And and that stuff really comes through in his work. It does. This is a fun story. Um, I remember he came on the year that this came out. And he said this actually put him in a bit of a dark place, having to research like all the conspiracy chat rooms on Reddit. Um, oh, yes, that yeah. would. Yeah, uh, I... <laughs> There are but some rabbit I, holes I'm willing to go down in order to research my work, but I draw the line <laughs> at like parts of Reddit and 4chan and things like that. Then when I had him on recently, he did say this was his favorite 
of his books that he's written. Oh, well, that's really cool. And I personally suggest if you're going to buy it to get the hardcover edition, it's just it has these beautiful bright red end papers and then the edges are like spray painted black. It's just perfect. I love it. Yeah, I I love it when that level of production goes into a book, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, where you feel, you know, there's some love and care that has been um, put into it in order to, uh, in order to tempt people (laughs) (laughs) to pull it off the shelves. (laughs) So that was We Sold Our Souls by Grady Hendrix. One that I think is really um, an interesting variation on this. Um, and is a classic, is a modern classic, is uh, once again by Stephen King, um, Pet Cemetery. Uh, Pet Cemetery does not have a specific entity. Um, there are illusions, but it is, but it still fulfills a lot of the Faustian bargain elements. Of course, as we all know by now, and if you don't know, shame on you. <laughs> it is about um, a a husband, wife, and child and cat <laughs> who move um, to this to this town, you know, that has kind of inexplicably a highway running through it that um that unfortunately often you know kills off uh one thing or another uh in one case you know it's a cat in another case it's a child however there is a a a pet cemetery which is built on supposedly an indigenous burial ground that uh has the power to to uh bring things back to life but not quite the way they were when they were originally alive and the question becomes is this a deal that you would be willing to make you know would you be so consumed with grief and so consumed with despair that you would want to bring something you loved back to life um in a 90 percent capacity and oh what's the other 10 percent <laughs> Could it be something evil, murderous, and horrible? <laughs> and um, but it's a very powerful story. Um, it's beautifully told in the Stephen King tradition. It's always, you know, it's one of his best books in that it is about so much more than just itself, and um, and really does look at the complexities of family and love, and and the question of you know life after death. Um, it's a it's a it's a tremendous read, um, regardless of whether it fulfills uh, the Faustian bargain template um and um and and it raises a lot of questions in anyone who reads it about what they would be willing to do or not do in a similar situation i love this book i think this is yeah as you were saying probably one of his best and is lewis the main character is that his name yeah i yeah i believe it's lewis who is uh who is the uh who is the father i just love the change in him because kind of when we're introduced to he and his wife he's this very clinical doctor and he kind of talks down to his wife for having this very emotional view of death and having kind of issues with her her sister and he's like I am a doctor I deal with death all the time I'm very detached until it happens to him until it hits home and it's his son then suddenly he's the one that goes into the pet cemetery 
Well, this is it. And the fact that he's a doctor, like the heavy, heavy irony of that and and his attitude in the situation up until that change is is really key um, because if he was somebody who was a little more likable or a little more approachable, I think it would be an entirely different story. But in fact, he 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 has a fall before he actually gives in and and makes the choice to go to the pet cemetery. And that and that transition um, really transforms him and humanizes him um, in our eyes, even though you know he's making just the worst possible mistake and um and it's and it's uh, and the twists and turns um in the in the latter half of the book are actually really ghastly and upsetting and nightmarish and and you think to yourself <laughs> you know oh stephen king you know i know what stephen king has to offer you know i know how to navigate through a stephen king book this is i believe his of his novels his darkest his grimmest, his like it is a sh- it is not long, but mm-hmm. it, it's still substantial. But it is not one of his longer books. Short, sharp shocks, really like designed to get you in the latter half of the book. Very, very effective. Oh yeah, I'd say emotional punches to the gut. I would say, if, I mean, I, I'm sure you consider it to be a book of the, that goes in the freezer. <laughs> I certainly consider it to be a freezer book. Like, of all the books on our list, it is right up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I would say that's a good pick for this one. Yeah. Um, my next pick is a bit more of a dark comedy. Uh, I have it here. I just got my, my copy. Oh, very good. Yeah. So it's signed here by Claudia Lux. Um, This is coming out in October. So I read an an early copy of it. But uh, we're following a very different character with this. We're following the dealmaker. We are following a man named Pei who works um, in the sixth floor of hell. And it is very much that kind of meta opening. Like, you've probably heard a lot of things about hell. Let me tell you what it's really like. And so it is kind of this... It starts off a little bit like, oh, hell for him is kind of this boring humdrum job. He works on the sixth floor, kind of the acquisitions department, and he's been assigned this family. And several generations of this family have sold over their souls to him to ensure their like wealth and success and security. And so he kind of just needs to get like one more. We're also following the family themselves as they are on the lake and they're also kind of dealing with their own things. They have some trauma that as a family they have not worked through and gotten past. So you also kind of feel for all of these people and all of these individual members of this family. And you also feel so much for Pei. His name's Peyote Trip. They all you get new nicknames in hell. Ah, okay. <laughs> So you're also following him and he also has a big goal in mind and kind of like a carrot that's been dangling in front of him that he's working towards. So you just kind of feel for everyone in this story. And I was not expecting to get so like emotionally invested in the story. Like I teared up. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, And I just it was very funny. You know, it's funny when it's supposed to be funny. It is funny to kind of see them all work together and talk about like you know hitting their quotas and like um different scenarios where you see him kind of sweet talk someone into signing over their soul and like what that looks like 
Um, I just thought it was a very, very fun take um, on this trope, kind of seeing it from the other side, the side of the, the devil himself or one of the worker bees, I guess, in hell. I think that's extremely clever. We don't often see um, this kind of deal making from the other side and and the fact that it obviously wouldn't be a one deal for hell scenario. You know, you, if it's interesting, of course, first of all, that it's sort of a minion of hell rather than the devil, quote unquote. And secondly, that it's like you would have to have different deals going with different people and different families in order to, you know, I love the idea of like fulfill a quota. <laughs> but in order to keep hell populated, um, you know, you're you're offering up a lot of temptation and um, and how administratively you can just sense that it might be a nightmare. <laughs> so uh, the fact that you would create compassion for for that kind of character um, in a book like that, I think, is a really clever idea. Like it's um, immediately, you know, it has me hooked. I really enjoyed it. I was really surprised by I think how much I ended up connecting with this book. And I think if people like the world building of shows like The Good Place and stuff like that i think this is one to check out when it comes out in october um i would say this is a pretty room temperature book like i said it is mostly a dark comedy more than anything but i felt like i had to talk about it for this episode i was curious about whether or not there was anything super spooky or scary going on in it but even if it's a romp it sounds like it's uh it's a a lot of fun and a really interesting take on the idea so i have one to offer up um, and that's going to be uh, Conjure Wife by Fritz Lieber. Fritz Lieber, I think, is known mostly um, for fantasy and science fiction from, I would say, probably the the 40s, 50s, probably the 50s, maybe even early 60s. Um, classic writer. Um, and in this case, um, Conjure Wife is about uh, <laughs> satanic doings um, in uh, on a university campus, and uh, which is uh, which is a place that's actually just perfect, <laughs> just perfect. In this situation, we have a young professor and his wife who are relatively new arrivals to uh, to this campus, where which feels like it's in New England and feels like it's very established and old and there's there's already a sort of a um, a structure a hierarchy among the professors and among their wives um, and and so they're trying to sort of like fit in and he's considered to be um, a new and you know fresh sort of you know uh, young guy in in the scenario and there's of course some seething jealousy and resentment these people are all forced to socialize with each other and play bridge with each other and stuff like that and but he's doing relatively well he's he is you know managing to succeed within his department he does not realize that it's because his wife is a witch <laughs> and not only is his wife a witch but 
other people on the campus are also witches and are actively fighting against him and his wife. And he is just blithely unaware of it until he starts to detect that his wife has all these like little charms and and little things that that point to like, you know, sort of protection spells and stuff like that. And of course he thinks it's nonsense and he thinks his wife is becoming unstable because of the pressure of the situation. He doesn't realize that if they destroy all of that stuff and renounce it, that the whole thing is just going to cave in upon them. And sure enough, it does. And then she, you know, makes a deal, you know, or, you know, tries to make a deal. He kind of stops her um, in order to try to bring things back the way they were. She is prepared to sacrifice herself, her life, in order to save him. And those elements are, in fact, the most potent elements in the entire story. Of course, he is able to sort of turn the tables on the woman who is behind um, all of the machinations that are going on. Um, but, um, but the love that they have for each other as a couple, um, as outdated as this kind of social structure is and this kind of mentality is, we can still see elements of it, you know, in academic circles, in corporate circles, even today. Things are still, you know, very, you know, patriarchal. And um, I was going to say, I do kind of see the like husband not acknowledging that any of his success comes from the invisible labor of his wife <laughs> when like when that stuff all comes to light it's actually you think to yourself oh yeah times haven't changed at all <laughs> you could totally tell this story today there is absolutely a way to tell this story today and um and it's actually you know for a lot of the of the story you think to yourself okay how much of it is psychological? How much of it is is supernatural? Because it plays the line in a really fine sort of way. This was made into a movie, um, and I think it was it's a, a I think it's a British film that has some American actors in it. Um, that's popularly known as Burn Witch Burn, and it is a tremendous movie. And it too plays the line between you know the supernatural and and the psychological, and it has. Uh, it has influenced a number of other films over the years. And one of the most striking scenes in the film is in fact lifted later on by uh, Dario Argento in the movie Suspiria, oh. um, where someone is walking through um, um, an open area, a plaza, and there is the sense that stone gargoyles are coming alive around them. And it's quite frightening. And uh, you never actually see something happen, but it feels like something's happening. That that film, you know, that film is absolutely uh, paying homage to Burn Witch Burn. It is it is a really interesting moment. Um, but overall, as a film, I think it's really tremendous. And as a story, as a book, it's really it's it's not long. It's a fast read. It's really fabulous. Oh, that's been on my TBR for a while. Um, oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Move it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially knowing that it's not a huge time commitment. It's not a 500-page tome. Or by any means. Yeah. All right. I will definitely check that out. Uh, my final pick is also a quick read. It is a novella called Where the Devil Waits by Wesley Southard and Mark Steensland. This is from Cemetery Gates. And this is about a group of friends who 
get convinced by one of them to go visit this abandoned church in the middle of Pennsylvania where it's rumored that the devil is there. And if you beat him in a foot race from the gate to the door of the church, he will grant you a wish. What he doesn't tell them is that if you lose the foot race, you will not be alive come sunrise. Oh, that's harsh. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like they're messing around, they do this stuff, and one of them loses the foot race, and it is a brutal, brutal death. Like I was reading it, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Come down. So it is kind of them... There is the element of, like, the remaining survivors kind of getting together, researching, trying to figure out, like, where did this come from? How can we work together to outsmart this? Like, there's a ticking time thing. Can we find a way to outsmart this element to it? Oh, that sounds fantastic. (laughs) it It was very fun. So I think if you want something, I know my last one was a bit of a dark comedy. If you're like, no, I want something that is really leaning into the horror of it, um, I would say this is a good pick for that. Um, And I would say the the gore itself, I think, pushes it kind of up to like high fridge. It gave me big uh, Final Destination vibes. Pushing up against the freezer if it's not actually (laughs) in it. (laughs) What's up there? Is that the crisper? No, that's at the bottom. (laughs) It's in the back. It's getting freezer burn. It's like way in the back. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And it's a novella. It's Mm -hmm. not long. It's Mm -hmm. short. No, it's a short short little read that is where the devil waits and that's by wesley southard and mark steensland so um so i have a couple of others but i think Mm -hmm. i'll just pick one um and it's it's one that i think is um first of all i think it's one that's really obvious secondly it's one that's really queer in fact not only is it really queer but it also really struggled uh upon publication because of its queerness um of course it is the legendary book uh the picture of dorian gray by oscar wilde and um only in the last i want to say 10 12 years or so did we finally get a version of the book that had all of the content that had been cut out previously finally restored. Really? So, yeah, it's taken that long. It's really interesting. And it's not because the by contemporary standards the material is explicit in any way. It's just that it is so obviously a uh, a comment on homosexuality in in Victorian, you know, culture um, at that time, and um, and so of course it is the story of a man who um, whose portrait is painted by an artist, and and uh, as you know, and he sees himself in the portrait looking young and beautiful, and he himself understands that he will grow old, he will become decrepit, you know, if he's lucky, he'll grow old and become decrepit um and and so what he does is he wishes essentially to the painting again not you know it's playing the line there's not really an evil entity in this situation the wish is kind of expressed to the painting but there is that sense that something has heard him and that it the wish is that the painting should grow old and um and decrepit in his place and that he himself should remain ageless and 
the agelessness that he is looking to maintain is tied very heavily for his desire, well, first of all, for his vanity, but secondly, for his desire to engage in what would be considered to be aging and corrupting experiences. He is a sensualist. He is a sybarite. He, and, and this, of course, is where the homosexual elements come into play because those things are considered to be the corrupting elements that um, are at work within him. Um, so, of course, once he realizes that um, the painting is changing <laughs> and he is not, he's like, oh, I think I'm going to put this in the attic where no one can see it and where it's going to be safe. <laughs> and that's going to allow me to live, you know, my life of vice and sin. And, um, of course, um, in doing that, um, he he you know betrays uh his girlfriend uh whose name is Sybil Vane i believe he uh he um is responsible for for people's deaths he is just you know throwing himself into a life of lust and and you know and sort of you know exotic experiences um sex drugs and i guess you know that period's equivalent of rock and roll and um meanwhile the painting you know continues to basically age and age and age and um and then when he is confronted with his um his life of sin um he destroys the painting and in fact in doing so destroys himself and it's an amazing story it too is not long it's probably just over the edge of being a novella um not terrifying but probably for its time a really unsettling and and really disturbing uh read in in the way that um that sort of like ghost stories and horror stories from that period can be a lot of it is happening on the psychological level a lot of it um is watching him um decay from the inside out as a character and other people being sort of like you know torn apart in his wake it's a it's a it's a it's a clammy and uncomfortable story absolutely even now I definitely need to reread it. Um, I have not picked it. Yeah, I was thinking I read it when I was 15. And I remember my main takeaway being, hey, there was no devil in here. I was told there would be a deal with the devil. Yeah, exactly. The fact that he makes the wish to the painting and that somehow that sticks Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you think to yourself, maybe it's the artist. The artist certainly comments on mm -hmm. the situation as it unfolds, but it does not feel like the deal has been made with the artist. It feels like the artist is a bystander in the situation. So, so it's interesting that it occurs the way that it does. And yet there is that feeling that a deal has been made. Yes. And there is that feeling that someone or something has overheard this unfortunate, you know, desire desire to sell your soul in order to remain, you know, young and beautiful and desirable and, um, and a part of, you know, this sort of like sybaritic lifestyle, um, you know, that, that has, that somehow a deal has been sealed. Yes. Um, I mean, I remember after that being very into the story as kind of like the stakes get higher and higher and it's getting like harder and harder to keep this a secret as people keep finding out and it's like a whole thing it's a it is a fun story I need to reread it 
now though and kind of have a little more understanding oh for sure and it's a story that also has been adapted in various ways mm -hmm. over the many years and um and and has been able to be more and more explicit as time has passed um with the kind of subculture that it's commenting on and the kind of lifestyle that it's commenting on it really would you know if you were to do it today it would lend itself well to being you know sort of a version of swinging london in the 60s or 70s or even in in um, in the in the sort of high stakes financial world of London today, there's a lot of there are a lot of ways to go with it. Um, it's I think it's a really versatile story as well. Definitely, I know the Dorian Gray character showed up in a Penny Dreadful. I didn't watch too many seasons of that. Yes, absolutely. That's one um, I kept meaning to go back to. And it seems to me that there was a relatively recent adaptation. Um, either as a as a miniseries or a TV movie or something like that in the last ten or fifteen years or so, um, but it's it's something that I think is always uh, ready for reinvention. There's an element of it. I know I'm going back to Phantom of the Paradise here, but there's an element of uh, it in Phantom of the Paradise as well, where we find out that the evil record producer played by Paul Williams is in fact not the devil. He himself has sold his own soul. He's under mm -hmm. contract as well, and he has a videotape of himself where he made the deal and the image in the videotape is aging and corrupting oh. <laughs> so that he himself can remain young and he himself oh. can remain, you know, sort of contemporary um, in the, in the pop music community. It's a very clever comment on the way pop music works and, and the way that uh, yeah. the music industry works. It uh, it's, it, and when you see how Paul Williams look, Paul Williams looks in the video, it's ghastly. <laughs> it's very upsetting. <laughs> one last one I wanted to squeeze in here that is not really horror at all, but you know, it was a, a big hit and people were talking about it, you know, within the last couple of years is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Um, have you read that one? I have not. Is it fantasy? Uh, there is that element to it because it, it starts out with this woman, I want to say in like eight, 18th, I'm going to get the centuries wrong, 18th century France, let's say, and she um, meets a figure in the forest and she kind of uh, makes a deal about wanting to get out of this life and not wanting to die. So he grants her this wish, but with the stipulation that no one will ever remember her. If someone takes her eyes off of her, if they look back again, they will have no memory of their previous encounter. Oh, wow. That's a really cool idea. So it is about her living all these lives and all the things she can and can't do. She can't order in restaurants because the waitress will not remember her when she comes back. Like nothing she says to anyone is going to stick. She's incapable of like leaving a mark <laughs> on the world and kind of how she navigates that until she meets somebody who does remember her. And this is in modern day. And she's like, Whoa. Oh, wow. Who are you? That's amazing. <laughs> um, and I really liked this one. This was a just a, a very good read. And I think kind of started me on this like, you know what, this is usually a horror thing. But I, I like seeing it in, in this context with kind of this literary romance angle. And then, oh, that the devil character kind of comes back and visits her every couple years and their dialogue and their kind of tete-a-tete scenes are so good and i was like i think i like him is he my favorite character 
See, it's a it's a really interesting risk you run when you tell this kind of story because it is easy for your your figure in the forest to to come out as the favorite to overshadow the person whose name is mm-hmm. in the title. <laughs> yeah. And uh and so so you know, you have to kind of play it carefully and be judicious about it unless you want to go there and yeah. in which case that's cool but um but yeah i mean i th- i think the temptation you know as a writer is definitely to like to to really go hard in those scenes and to and to really explore the philosophy of the situation that you've created for yourself mm-hmm. yeah but i i really liked that one um so yeah, I would say if that sounds interesting to you, that is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Are we ready to get into chilling obsessions? Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been enjoying in horror lately? Well, what's been fun lately is I have a friend named Jake who is a younger guy and who does not have, first of all, is not a horror fan. He finds it kind of anxiety provoking, by the way. Hello, Jake. And secondly, um, has not seen a lot of sort of like classic horror films. And for me, those are films, you know, that are fairly like horror and noir and thriller from like the 40s and 50s. Those are a fairly safe thing to watch because a lot of the stuff that is very explicit and can be very uh, upsetting in in contemporary horror, um, in classic horror is more psychological and is more suggested and um, and still very effective, but but sort of like, you know, it makes you have to lean in with your imagination in order to um, to to uh, sort of complete the scary picture. Um, the films that I'm thinking of, for example, are the old black and white Val Luton movies that he made for RKO. He was a producer at the time, and he had a number of directors he worked with, but the films all had a a sort of a consistent look and feel. They were all um, filled with like you know really strong contrasts and shadows and startling noises and unusual surrealistic set pieces. Um, some examples are Cat People, the original Cat People. Um, I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man, uh, The Curse of the Cat People, which is very different uh, and more dreamlike than the original Cat People. Um, and two particular favorites of mine, um, The Seventh Victim, which is um, about a young girl who investigates the disappearance of her older sister who uh, lived in Greenwich Village um, and possibly consorted with Satanists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's really nifty. Um, and also um, a film called Night of the Demon, which is based on an M.R. James story called Casting the Runes. And it too is a variation on the um, on the uh, Faustian bargain story. Um, it's it's a really neat film. And... and uh, is actually, you know, can get under your skin in a creepy way. Um, And of course, at that time, there was also the AIP movie, which I've alluded to earlier, Burn Witch Burn, which, while not a Val Luton movie, was very much a classic of that period. And um, those films have been really fascinating for me. It's been really great to rediscover them recently. If you're somebody who... um, finds uh, contemporary horror and the gruesomeness and graphicness of it um, to be a bit much sometimes. It's nice to go back to these films because they offer a kind of a comfort, but they can still deliver the chills. And that's one of the things that I that I really enjoy um, about uh, 
the the sort of the the horror films of this period and particularly the horror films that came out of RKO. Those are that whole era I think is a big blind spot for me when it comes to horror. I just I really feel like I kind of want someone to do like a showing and give me like a here's, here's the, the cultural, cultural context, context here's, here's what was going on at the time experience for it. So Oh, I think that that, I mean, that's my dream. I mean, mm-hmm. in cities that have like, you know, either university film screenings or or cinematechs or or repertory houses that do this kind of thing. Um, if you get a chance to 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 go to those, they're like the ideal way to see mm-hmm. these films. I know that some of the films, uh, particularly around Halloween, some of the films come on to um, streaming channels like the Criterion Collection. Uh, you can see them there. Some of them, every once in a while, end up on YouTube or on Tubi, and you can find them there as well. Um, but it's very much a catch-as-catch-can situation and for a film like the seventh victim for years that film wasn't seen at all it was not available Mm -hmm. on disc or it was available as part of a very expensive collection it wasn't available on streaming for a really long time um and yet it's a really fascinating film it's 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 strangely edited it's strangely composed it has a david lynchian quality to it Mm -hmm. um that i find really eerie and effective and um and it's surprising when you go to these films and you see how modern they actually are, um, you expect them to be quaint. And in fact, they, they continue to resonate even today. I'll have to look into those. Cause I think, uh, I think a few of these are on HBO. Oh yeah. It's worth checking for sure. Yeah. Well, my chilling obsessions this week, um, as I mentioned earlier, the new season of what we do in the shadows still delivering. Uh, it's cracking me up that Nadia wants to open up a vampire nightclub like in Blade. And she kind of keeps like, I really want the blood sprinklers. Like there's just a lot of. I was going to ask if the blood sprinklers were going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> That's in her original pitch. She's like, you know, you've seen it, right? The blood sprinklers. Everyone's having a good time. <laughs> they just it cracks me up um and then on a surprising note i have always had a soft spot for the teen drama uh so i had to check out the new pretty little liars original sin if you didn't mention it i was going to mention it so i am so glad that you are bringing it up did you watch it too i have watched the first episode Mm -hmm. i am going to be watching this series i watched um how much of it did I watch? I watched the first two seasons of the original, mm-hmm. and then I have to admit, it just beca- because yeah. they were hour-long episodes and there were so many of them, I ended up reading up on mm-hmm. like subsequent seasons, but then I tuned in again for the final season because it was just so incredibly bonkers. I mean, the whole season, I mean, oh, the whole yeah. series was bonkers anyway, but the last season, they just went like to the moon. <laughs> it was on when I was in college and I remember I would call my sister and ask her to like recap what had happened and it sounded made up. I'm like, excuse me? She's like, but she's not really this person and then she had an evil twin and then she... Well, and of course, the people who are involved with this new mm-hmm. series um, are the people who are involved beh- who were behind Chilling Adventures of yep. Sabrina and Riverdale. 
bonkers, bonkers, bonkers series in their own right. <laughs> and so now I'm like, okay, like I want it all. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who did the the graphic novel for Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as well, which is like one of my favorites. And I, I think we see those elements with like the the dark, dingy high school. And I'm loving that we have like a big horror fan character that's constantly name dropping uh, like horror references here and there so it's been it's been fun and I, I'm very excited to check it out and seeing that it is leaning much more into the horror and I'm like all right let's see how this goes really strong slasher element the mm -hmm. the moment there was I won't spoil it because it is brand new but there was one moment where we are confronted with a particularly graphic you know death scene and I was like okay, we're not playing around. <laughs> yeah, we're not on the CW anymore. We're on HBO. <laughs> so, David, before we sign off, I got to know, what's your final girl song? Well, my final girl song this time is, I mean, I can't help myself. It's Whatever mm -hmm. Lola Wants by Eartha Kitt, you know, from Damn Yankees. She never played it. Uh, she didn't get to play the role, but she she certainly sang you know the shit out of the song uh, <laughs> when she when she did her version of it, and I just adore it. I love it. I mean, I will have to look up her version of it. I saw it when I watched Damn Yankees. I'm like, this is a fun song, so I will be adding that to the playlist. Um, I don't usually add final girl songs for episodes, but I had to add this song by Twin Temple. Their whole brand is satanic doo-wop. So it's kind of like Amy Winehouse, but like a cult. And I'm picking the song, The Devil Didn't Make Me Do It. And if you listen to it, it is very, that's her style is this like 50s doo-wop. That sounds perfect. That sounds ideal, actually. <laughs> Uh, they were an opening act at a concert I went to, and it was just so much fun. They, you know, they really leaned into it. They're like, we're doing a black mask. Well, it sounds ideal to me, and it's obviously working for them. So yeah, I'm adding, The Devil Didn't Make Me Do It by Twin Temple. All right, well, David, thank you so much for joining me to tackle this topic that I've been wanting to do. Um... I feel like we had a great conversation about it. We feel like we like basically covered everything. I think there's nothing there's nothing more to discuss. I think we've done it. <laughs> That's it. We have put it to bed. <laughs> no more no more scholarly pursuits need to be done in this topic actually. We're done. <laughs> Well, of course, it was my pleasure to be here. It's always delightful talking to you. And it's and it's such a great topic. There's just, you know, there's an embarrassment of riches. You know, you can go in any direction mm -hmm. and you can find wonderful th versions of this story. So uh, so thank you very much for having me on. Thank you again. And listeners, of course, you know that you need to read The Bone Mother and Red X if you haven't already. And as per Rachel's suggestion, she said the audiobook for Red X is fantastic, which when I reread, I think that's how I'm going to revisit that one. Oh, yeah. No, they, they did a tremendous job. My contribution is minor compared to everything else <laughs> that goes on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So listeners, definitely check that out. And yeah, I mean, if you're in this situation, get yourself some legal counsel, some devilish counsel, if you can find some. Absolutely. Don't go in alone. <laughs> <laughs>
Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash books in the freezer, on TikTok as Books in the Freezer, and you can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. One of them is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash books in the freezer. There are several different tiers of support from one to five dollars a month with, you know, all kinds of different perks at each level, ranging from early episodes to bonus episodes to movie nights, group chats, etc. So if any of that interests you, you can check that out. Um, our latest bonus series has been delving into The Exorcist. So last month's bonus episode was on the novel by William Peter Blatty. Uh, this upcoming month will be on the film. And then I think we are reading Legion, just kind of in the Exorcist universe also by William Peter Blatty. So check those out. You can get access to those at the Malevolent Spirit level. You can also go to Amazon and use our Amazon link that is in the show notes. Just do whatever normal shopping you would normally do and a small percentage of that goes to help the podcast. So big thank you to all of you who have done that already. And if you're looking to support the podcast without spending any money, there are absolutely ways you can do that. A huge one is to leave a review on a site like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify, I think it's like easy because you can just leave a star rating. You don't need to write anything. If you leave it on Apple Podcasts, um, I think you do need to write like a couple sentences. And thank you so much to all of you listeners who have taken the time to do that. It really helps the show gain visibility. And honestly, just sharing on social media and reaching out, all of that is huge. Thank you so much. So, you know, even those comments that I'm going to get for this episode telling me, you know what, Pretty Little Liars was actually a freeform show, not a CW show. I did catch that while I was editing. I was like, that's not correct, past Stephanie. As always, I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. And on Instagram at That's What She Read. And that is That's with two A's. Um, we will be possibly taking a break next week, like when an episode would come out, just because I'm going to be out of town and not have internet, like Wi-Fi access. So I have a lot of people lined up to do some exciting topics, though. So I will see you then. So see you next time on Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 